Hey, welcome back to another episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by Sourceify and Isba. I'm your host, Nathan Resnick, joined by Aaron from Isba. Aaron, welcome to the show. How are we doing? I'm doing good, Nathan. A little bit hoarse, but uh, happy to be here. Well, hey, I know you just got back from a big conference in Vegas. So how was that? Let's start there. It was good. I, I feel like my entire LinkedIn network there was at the Manifest show. Um, you know, the first day I stood in like a 10 by 10 square foot spot uh, by the escalator. I probably had 60 people who I knew walk up and talk to me. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's cool. I feel like it's always good to see the people that you know online in person. And like, you know, sometimes it, take, it goes a few years and you're like, wow, I've seen you on LinkedIn or Twitter for so long. And now I finally meet you in person. It's a really cool experience in my opinion. Yeah, my my uh, my thinking is I need to bring a empty picture frame sometime so that people can just wear it and I feel more at home because I'm, I need to do so many virtual calls. <laughs> That's funny. That's awesome. Well, let's dive in. This episode we're talking about K18. For those that don't know, K18 is a premium hair care brand distributed in over twenty five thousand salons. It was recently acquired by Unilever, which was a you know huge but undisclosed acquisition. And the growth of this brand is just pretty incredible. So before we dive into the K18 story and their supply chain, we're first going to take a brief moment to talk about current events, current trends we're seeing. Aaron, has there been anything you've seen in the past you know, two weeks that's caught your eye? Yeah, the, uh, the thing that stood out is uh, I met a company called Books that has um, reusable packaging. Uh, so the, you know, lots of people have tried to do circular economy things. Uh, this one, it is like a plastic um, corrugate. So it, it's got the same uh, fluting that a, a normal corrugate box would have. And uh, what, they, what they've done is they've basically worked out the math where they will lease the product or lease the box to the brand. Uh, and by doing that, the cost is basically the same as, uh, as a regular corrugate box. And so, uh, you know, I, I haven't really seen anybody who's been able to do that at the same price point. Uh, so that was the, the unique innovation there. Um, I did talk to a couple of their customers. They've been around for a little while. Uh, earlier on, I think those early boxes where they had Velcro and air gaps, they were less interesting. Um, but these new ones look to be a much, much, much better. You know, my, I think the, the just general question is, while I love the idea of circular economy and being able to use less packaging, all of this depends on someone, the consumer, going and dropping off that uh, that that box to a Walgreens or CVS, uh, so that can be returned and reused. And so I think it's a it's still very much in the early adopter phase of the adoption curve, and there'll be a lot of people who uh, will like the option um, and, and may go for that. Um, but I just don't know how how much they're going to actually return those packaging. But I'm uh, I'm very excited to see that kind of innovation, and, and certainly the economics starting to make sense. Do they have any data in regards to return rates and how many of these boxes they actually get back? I mean, I'm just curious what that actually looks like. I mean, if you can just drop it off at a Walgreens or whatever maybe or UPS, then that makes it, you know, super easy to return. But at the same time, you know, how many consumers are actually going out of their way to to return, you know, a box like that? I'm I'm curious if they share data around that. Yeah, I mean, they're leveraging happy returns uh location points, so there's a, there's actually quite a few. Uh, so if you're in the habit of returning things anyways, it, it just kind of goes with that. But uh, if you're someone who doesn't return a lot of things, you're probably not going to start returning boxes. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I talked with some people who are around there. I don't know if these numbers are official or, or they're just someone's guess, um, but I heard about 15 to 20% uh, reclamation rate where those are actually being returned. So if that's true, then they're probably losing a lot of money because of the the uh, plastic fluting and, and just those boxes are more expensive to produce. And if they're becoming right. single use, that's probably not good from a cost perspective, but also not great from an environment perspective. Yeah, I feel like 15, 20% is, is really bad in terms of a return rate. I mean, if I'm a brand that's, you know, quote unquote, leasing these boxes and only, you know, 20% of my customers are returning the boxes that I'm leasing, then I own, owe this company, you know, money because I'm not returning those boxes either. It seems like it's going to have uh, downstream effects on those brands' uh, P&L statements. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I, I definitely think that having some sort of circular economy is is the direction where we want to go, but uh, it's still very early innings. 
I do really like Happier Returns model. I mean, they, I think, enable you now basically to return packages across like any UPS and I think maybe Walgreens as well or CVS, one of the con major convenience stores. And I mean, their model just makes a ton of sense to be able to basically kind of have that Amazon-esque type of return policy and have so many access points, I think is, you know, really game-changing for so many e-commerce brands. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I'm pretty sure they got acquired in the past year or so. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, UPS acquired Happy Returns. Yeah. So it was PayPal initially, and then uh, I guess PayPal wanted to go back to doing just payments. So uh, yeah, UPS acquired them. So that UPS is doing some interesting stuff. They keep collecting all of these uh, different types of logistics companies. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, we should do a, a deep dive on them someday. We definitely should. We definitely should. What caught my eye is just all the, you know, Valentine's holiday sales, right? I just think it's so interesting how different brands are in different sales. And part of me questions, like, should these brands be running sales so much, right? Because it kind of gets a consumer in the mindset of, oh, I'll just wait till the next holiday to buy a product on discount. When, you know, at the end of the day, like, if you're, you know, pushing your kind of customers to getting used to buying your products when you discount them i don't know like how good that is for for your brand overall and so you know i think it's just it, it's obviously cool to you know drive a sale and drive some growth through a valentine's day type of sale but at the end of the day like i just wonder what kind of downstream effects that has because you know e-commerce in general q4 is driving most of your revenue and so if you have these like little bumps through the year around valentine's day or father's day or whatever it may be like is that actually a net positive for your brand if you're continuing to have to run sales to you know drive any revenue bumps yeah that's a great question in, in my opinion i think it really depends on what kind of category you're in uh you know if you're selling the same device over and over again and all you have to play with is the price then i can see how that kind of conditions people to just wait uh, we definitely saw that when i was at mirror uh, where you know we had we had one skew the whole time, and it was just like uh, the only thing that changed was the price. Uh, but I think if you're like in apparel or jewelry or something else where you can do some limited addition, then those drops become uh, really special. And, and maybe, you know, you're, what you're doing is you're trying to give people an excuse to come back to the website. And so if there is scarcity um, in the form of a drop, I think that that, uh, that is pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I do see, though, like if you think about the major kind of e-commerce brands of the past, you know, five, 10 years, most of them do have like one major skew that drives the volume that they become known for, whether it be like Allbirds and their like original shoe, they launched, you know, what, three or five colorways, like not that many. And it was just that one initial design. And, you know, same with, you know, uh, uh, away luggage, you know, they had kind of one main kind of suitcase that they launched with. I mean, most of these brands are launching with like one marquee skew and then kind of continuing to expand their their skew count across you know different uh, styles but i mean even go back to movement watches i mean that like main like black watch with those red uh that one red hand like that drove a lot of their volume you know to get them to 100 million in revenue over time so i think it's just interesting because you know if you continue to discount you know that main skew it, it's probably gonna have some some negative effects downstream but I mean, it's all about skew expansion a lot of times to drive more growth. Yeah, that's good. Well, should we dig in? I am uh, absolutely obsessed with this company. 18, let's, let's dive in. I mean, it's a pretty incredible story because there's two different ways to look at it, right? You can look at the history of Suveen's wife started, you know, in the early 90s, which is a really unique scientific driven towel brand. Or you can actually look at the founding of K18 which happened in, in 2020. And so I think, Aaron, if you can start by giving us the story of Aqueous in 1990 and just kind of understanding their background as a you know husband and wife that really got them to the point of starting K18, because I think it's always interesting to understand, okay, you know, they didn't just go out and start this scientific-driven hair care brand. They had a lot of history in this space and understanding the interaction between a fabric in this case a towel and hair so if we can start by just understanding their backstory and then dive into k18 i think that would be a great approach yeah that, that's great yeah i like what you're saying because 
the headline is that they sold for close to a billion dollars after 36 months after launching. And that is true, but uh, it's also misleading at the same time. So, uh, so digging into Aquius, uh, so Britta Cox, Sabine's wife, who was the founder of K18, uh, she started this in 1990. And uh, for those of you with long hair, you may be familiar with uh, Aquius. And it basically what it is, is it's a, a towel that helps dry your hair better and faster. Um, and Britta didn't really have any other experience in, in hair care other than having long hair herself. And she got tired of using traditional cotton towels. She was working in the ski industry at that point in time in her life. And there were all these new moisture wicking fibers uh, that would allow people to sweat, uh, but not be cold. And she said, hey, man, this is, this is really cool. Couldn't we use this for, you know, just everyday use? And so she started working with a Japanese hair company. And she made her first towel uh, with these moisture wicking fibers. Uh, and it was, it was designed for a quick and gentle hair dry. She, she they developed this piece where they could uh, have a special fastener so it sits on as like a turban and it allows the towel to stay where it needed to be so that if you wanted to do yoga, walk around the house, chase your kids, whatever you need to, uh, it, you could do that without losing your towel. Uh, and so this business was doing very well. I mean, it was, I think, uh, low tens of millions in, in revenue and just this is pre-internet age and had been going on for, gosh, 30 years uh, up until 2020. And along this time, uh, Britta got married. Her husband, uh, Subin Sahib, uh, was a tech guy. He had joined the venture uh, in, in much the similar way that, uh, you know, you just kind of know what's going on in your partner's work life and uh, what struggles they have. And he brought a really interesting curiosity. He was, he was just curious about why, why this business existed and why, uh, why having a moisture wicking towel made a difference in hair. And so as they, as this business started to grow, he started to investigate uh, into why the towel actually made a difference. And so he went into the, the chemistry of hair, the physics of drying, the physics of, of kind of coloring and cleaning and all those sorts of things. And what he uncovered was that uh, traditional hair care methods were often damaging and counterproductive to what people were trying to do as far as making, making your hair healthy and, and uh, having a, a better life for it. Um, so this path kind of led him to develop uh, K18, which is this, they call it a biomimetric hair treatment. Um, and so what they do is they try to focus on repairing hair at the molecular level, uh, kind of in the same way that it happens in, in nature. And uh, his, his research led him to start finding scientists in Portugal that were mapping the keratin genome of hair, like literally mapping the DNA of hair and trying to identify uh, specific peptides for hair repair. And so this is a very, very, you know, scientific piece here. And, you know, I think for Sabine, he probably didn't know if this was going to in turn into something or if it was, uh, you know, something that was uh, just a, a side project. And so for, uh, for several years, he worked with these, these scientists. Uh, they have been working on this for, you know, since 2006. So this is, you know, 10, 15 uh, years of, of research in there. And uh, they decided to make a product that would not only repair hair, but also strengthen it from, the, from within. And uh, they wanted to make sure that they were able to kind of fix hair that had been badly damaged from chemical treatments. And so that was kind of the, the initial piece of how uh, Oculus led into all this work with K18. So it was just the groundwork from 1990 to, to, to 2020. So they had a lot of history in, in, in hair, basically, is what we're saying. And I, I think what's super interesting too, compared to a lot of a lot of ways that e-commerce brands start, is they actually patented their formula, right? They didn't, you know, go private label some sort of shampoo or conditioner or whatever it may be. You know, they really dove deep into the scientific research of what you know restores and regrows hair, and they took a very scientific approach to this, and so they patented their formula, which I think is. I don't know, probably unheard of most of the time in any sort of kind of supplement or most hair care brands. I mean, you don't really hear many times of a company going out and patenting their formula and their product before they go to market. And so I think it goes to show, okay, they actually did a ton of research here trying to understand, you know, what's going to actually, you know, help your hair rather than just private label labeling something off the shelf. And I'm also curious too, where that K18 name comes from. I didn't see it, you know, in, in our research in terms of, you know, why they, they decided to name the brand K18. I, I 
thinking maybe there's 18, you know, peptides or 18, you know, follicles that make up, you know, a healthy piece of hair or something around that nature. But, you know, I think really where they struck a chord with stylists is around their science, because it seems like a lot of stylists just maybe had a disconnect with the products they were using in terms of, okay, is this actually, you know, backed by science or what makes this good? Okay, it's got, you know, this this uh, ingredient in it, but, you know, what does that actually mean? I mean, there's so many cases where, like, a lot of the formulas are really just uh, made around marketing, but it sounds like, you know, in K18's case, they dove deep on, okay, you know, let's take a scientific approach. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, what led them to have so much success because other brands, you know, have not had this approach. Yeah, this is not your grandfather's G2C business. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, you're right. This wasn't a traditional kind of white labeled sort of thing. Um, you know, the K18 peptide is, I think, where the name comes from. And that was the unique uh, protein that they were able to, to, to kind of isolate to help uh, solve their things. And so uh, I got curious into, you know, what actually this, this peptide does. And basically the, the way that the, the framework that I found was if you imagine your hair as a damaged road with uh, broken and disconnected segments, so there's potholes, there's rocks, whatever's going on. Uh, traditional hair care products act like temporary patches. So they fill in the potholes and the surface cracks uh, and give the appearance of a smooth road while not fixing the underlying structure. So over time, these patches wear off and the road is fundamentally unchanged. And so what K18 does is they're kind of like a construction crew that comes in and rebuilds the road from the ground up. And so it works on the molecular level and they try to reconnect those broken polypeptide chains, uh, which is effectively the road's foundation from within the hair's inner structure. And this not only repairs the surface, but also restores the core strength and resilience, uh, much like reconstructing a road for long-term would, would do. And so the, the claims and, and the science behind K18 is that it's a more permanent uh, fix and it leaves the hair in a generally better state as opposed to uh, kind of window dressing. And I think like what's, what's really interesting here is uh, now, we, like, now that we've got the science, we dig into the actual business of it. And one, I guess one of the factoid that's going to be important here is that K18, uh, you know, you can, you can get this treatment in as little as four minutes. And that's going to be important here in a moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's cool to see the science and, and, you know, in terms of their, their, you know, business and, and their launch, I mean, they launched in 2020 and it seems like almost overnight we're in like 25,000 salons, which is just crazy to fathom. I mean it sounds like they really took more of a kind of retail approach, if you will. I mean, they probably maybe had some, you know, affiliate agreements or commission agreements with some stylists, but to get into 25,000 salons basically in their first year is just pretty insane. Part of me wonders if some of those relationships stem from Aqueous, you know, the towel brand that uh, they had previously founded. I, I think it, it, that must have, because otherwise there's no way you can get into that many salons overnight. I mean, that distribution is just insane. And to think about even the supply chain coordination to have distribution to that many salons as well, that's a feat in itself. So I'm curious, I mean, number one, do you think they were able to access that many salons through prior relationships? And number two, if I was going to tell you, Aaron, I want to distribute my product to 25,000 salons, how would you go about that? I mean, that's a lot of distribution. Are you just, you know, having one central warehouse and, you know, shipping out, you know, 10 units or 50 units to each one? What, what do you think that looks like? Yeah, well, it's actually much easier than it, than it sounds because uh, there's only a few distributors that service all the salons. So you're, you're really still a B2B business, uh, but you're, you're kind of making those deliveries to those, uh, to the salons via distributor. So you know, I, I, yeah, it wasn't as if they were going door to door. I, I'm sure they had pre-existing relationships that were certainly helped and allowed them to kind of get that distribution. But I just want to come back to the timing. This was 2020. Like, what was going on in the world in 2020? Uh, not a lot. Like, people weren't going out. And so, you know, the interesting thing here is they decided to launch a hair care brand in retail, like in, in salons, uh, in, during, the, during the early days of the pandemic. And uh, they did about like $70 million their first year. And so it's, it's kind of like, well, what the heck? Like, if, if I were to tell you, Nathan, that you were going to start a, uh, a B2B business in 2020 and you weren't going to have a DDC website 
for a few years, you would be like, that's stupid. There's no way that that's going to work. And yet somehow they were able to pull it off. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, I don't quite know how they were able to pull that off, to be honest, especially in 2020, because I mean, most salons were probably closed for a good portion of that year. Um, but, you know, their growth is just tremendous. And I think it goes to show like, you know, if you have pre-existing distribution connections, you know, you can get into that many doors pretty quickly. Um, and I think they really hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, targeting a network that they already had relationships with. Because, I mean, I know I know brands that have been around for five or 10 years that, you know, are only in 500 stores or 1,000 stores, you know, and, and they've been going to all sorts of trade shows for the past few years. And, and you know, to be able to access that many salons so quickly is, is almost unheard of. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was really interesting because on the surface, this idea of launching in salons in the pandemic seems like a really bad idea. Uh, but they did a masterful job of really understanding who their customers were and what the problems were. And so, again, the key thing about the solution that K18 has is it helps people really restore the the natural abilities or natural efficacy of their own hair um, after they've been severely damaged from color. And so what they did is they said, okay, well, where do people who have damaged hair, where do we find that concentration? Well, it's going to be in salons because um, most people that style their hair or, or color their hair regularly do that at a salon. Okay, so there's there. Um, how do we get involved with people who will see the most damage here? Well, those are going to be the colorists or the hairstylists. And so they went out and they made a very specific goal of interacting and trying to win over these colorists because if you're going to get your hair taken care of, you're paying, you know, 100 bucks or so for someone to color your hair, you're going to take whatever recommendation they have. And, and so, like, they, they kind of identified where their market was and said this was what they were going to do. And in reality, the pandemic was probably the best thing that could have happened for them, even though they didn't have a D2C site. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, you remember during the pandemic, there were all these uh, qualifications as essential workers. Well, getting your hair colored was considered to be an essential service. You, you can't have those grays come through. And so what they ended up doing, though, was they basically had to give up every other chair in order to, uh, to allow for social distancing. And so what that meant is if I'm a salon owner, um, now my available revenue has been cut in half because I just can't fit that many people in. I can only, I've only got space for half as many as I had. And typically a treatment would be 60 to 90 minutes. And so, you know, I really only get a handful of people per day. Well, remember, we talked about K18 working in as little as four minutes. And so suddenly you've got this really great outside forcing mechanism for K18 where uh, these color stylists see that there's a big impact uh, and that it, the product actually works. And uh, there's now an economic incentive where I don't have to wait for 90 minutes and give up, you know, half much. I can actually increase the number of customers that I see because I'm able to take that treatment time from 60 to 90 minutes down to four minutes. And so they just exploded because of these two things that uh, were very intentional and then also kind of uh, luck at the same time. Yeah, I mean, timing matters in any business, right? And I think with K18, they hit the nail on the head with that for sure. But I mean, at, at the end of the day, too, I, I think it's interesting because they didn't really have like a DDC strategy when they launched. They went a B2B route. And I just wonder what the behind the scenes looks like of, of replenishing those orders. You know, they must have had some sort of B2B distribution portal for those stylists to go in and reorder product for their salons. I, I mean, I think uh, to, to me, it looks, looks like they had launched. So they launched in Sephora in December of 2021. So I'm sure kind of in 21, they started to have more of an omni-channel approach because they weren't just going you know, through these stylists. They started working with other retailers like Sephora. And you know, they had, at that point, they had their own website from, from my understanding. And they also you know, raised some, some capital. They raised $25 million from VMG Partners um, with the projected growth of 50 to 100% in 2022. So from our notes and research, they generated $75 million in 2021. And then they, you know, raised some growth capital to, to grow another 100%, which is pretty insane. But it's, you know, that's, I think, from my research on VMG, that's really what they are focused on is kind of that growth stage round to, you know, take you to 100 plus million in revenue. 
Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's a couple of great uh, venture partners out there that are they're doing exactly that as well. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think you talked about the the growth was just truly astounding, and and this product is not cheap. I mean, a little bottle is seventy, eighty bucks, uh, and so the the economics were very much in their favor. Where you know, going from selling fifty units a day to to a hundred units a day to a thousand units a day, just the the dollars start to stack up pretty quickly. What do you think their margins are on like a eighty dollar bottle of of K eighteen shampoo? I mean, how much do you think they're they're producing that for? I would, I, I mean, typically prestige hair care is going to be around, uh, you know, 80, 90% margin anyways. Um, I would imagine that perhaps their, you know, their products are a little bit more expensive to produce because of, of the science stuff that's behind it. So I would guess that they're probably looking at like a 70% margin. Maybe they're producing, uh, you know, a little bottle for 10 or $12. Um, and they're able to sell it for 70. So, uh, you know, I, I could be way off on that, but uh, there, there's a reason why Unilever was interested in them and it wasn't because they were losing money. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I think too, it's kind of unique in the sense that for them to even start this business, they must have put in significant capital either of their own or, you know, raised an early round of capital of finance inventory, right? Because even if their product costs, cost, let's say, you know, 10 or $15, to be in 25,000 stores, I mean, that's a lot of money that they're putting in inventory right up front, right? I mean, so I, I'm not sure if they put the money in themselves or if they, you know, raise capital to start, but their growth trajectory is just mind-blowing. I mean, to go from 75 mil in 2021 to, you know, they estimated 112 to 150 in 2022, and then, you know, you could assume that when they got acquired, uh, they were doing, you know, 200 million in revenue or so at time of acquisition by Unilever. So it's, I mean, an incredible growth trajectory, but at the same time to, to fund that much inventory when you're starting off in your first year, that's a lot of capital. It, it is. I think they had, uh, you know, good unit economics. And so there's lots of debt financing and, and uh, you know, just factoring that you could do to help help that work. Um, but I also think that, you know, they, they leveraged the existing business, the, the Oculus uh, business and team that that probably covered a lot of the overheads, probably covered a lot of the initial investment uh, that went into that. Because the the way the acquisition was termed was they, they had like a holding company and then K18 and Oculus were kind of subsidiaries of that holding company. And so they were, they, they were able to take the profits and team and good fortune uh, from one company and invest the others. So I think we're going to see that a little bit more and more. Uh, you know, there are a handful of brands that have spun out of other successful brands. So, uh, you know, if you think about Harry's and Flamingo, uh, same product, different color, different name. Uh, that's that's an example of, of kind of just uh, a, a brand giving birth to another brand. But then you look at something like Hubble Contacts and Mockingbird Strollers. Uh, those, you know, contacts and, and strollers have nothing to do with each other. But that core team was able to spin them out and, and let them do uh, great things. It makes a lot of sense. It definitely makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious because as they prepared for an exit, I know we saw they make some pretty key hires here. Can you go over who they hired to prepare for an exit? Yeah, I think what they did that was really smart is they struck what appears on paper, at least, the right balance between team cohesion and having people who have worked together for a few years prior and have kind of been there from the beginning, and then bringing in the, the people with the right kind of pedigree. Um, when they were getting ready to exit. So uh, I'll start with kind of the team cohesion piece. A lot of the core team members came from uh, Oculus Hair. So if you look on their LinkedIn profiles, they're, you know, head of fulfillment, head of logistics, uh, you know, some demand planners. They had all worked together for several years prior to the founding of K18. So you have a situation where they were probably involved in the development. Uh, maybe they thought it was a bad idea. and like, hey, you're, you're diverting us from uh, this other, you know, project we've got. Um, or maybe they were, you know, behind all the time. But you've got this team that kind of knows where each other's warts are. They know what they're good at, know what they're not good at. And so you kind of have this benefit of a uh, a team that has forged a, a company for the first time that came through and is able to do it. And so they did that. Uh, the, their VP of supply chain, Helen Hung, uh, was with them since 2020. And she previously led MPI at Roden Fields. And so that was kind of their first hire specifically for AK-18 right when it started. And the person they hired was someone who, whose job before them was launching new products. 
And so that was exactly what they needed. They didn't need someone who was super strong in procurement or super strong on fulfillment or parcel or the things like that. They went out and hired exactly what they needed uh, because of where the business was at that point. Um, and then kind of looking through, you know, as, as I believe they were preparing for an exit in, uh, in 2022, uh, they hired their CFO, Vital Patel Scott, uh, who came from Beauty Counter, which is a, you know, a great pedigree there. Uh, January 2023, they hired Reef Holland uh, as their director of procurement and sourcing. He had spent four years at Olapex, which is a, a large um, hair care company as well. And in 2022, they hired their, their COO, uh, Allison Barker, who had a legal background and was previously COO and president at Drybar. And so you kind of you know, think about this team that said, okay, we've got this product. It's doing really well. We're growing. Let's not only bring in the expertise that we need, but then let's also make sure we've got the right pedigree so that any acquirer could salivate over, over this team and the product itself. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that, you know, they had that core team from their original business, and then they brought in a lot of executives from amazing businesses in their industry, you know, from from uh, Dry Bar and Beauty Counter. I think it's interesting to take that approach. And I think it goes to show like, okay, they hit a scale where it made sense to have these seasoned executives to come in and really, you know, formulize probably some of their processes and and strategy and so i think it makes a lot of sense to do that as you prepare for an exit especially at that scale to bring in those executives that have had uh and ran you know multi-hundred million dollar pnl because it's it's a huge you know undertaking and to bring in someone from a bigger business like you know beauty counter makes a lot of sense for them to you know then prepare for an exit but you know i think it's just interesting because they had so much experience in this industry prior to starting K18. And I think that's why, okay, you can say this was quote unquote, an overnight success story of, you know, three years. But at the end of the day, they've been in this industry working with salons and, you know, developing this, this hair care formula for a while. I mean, you know, though their product, this product in particular was only in market for, you know, three years or so before being acquired. You know, they have a lot more history actually in this market than I think meets the eye at first. Yeah, that's true. And I kind of want to go back to this team thing too, because that is such a hard thing to get right. I mean, how many companies do you know where they had something that was working, it was going well, uh, they were told to bring in outside management, outside expertise, and they got the hires wrong and end up, you know, wasting time, wasting money and, and kind of going in a different direction. So there's a there's a difficult balance here from a culture perspective, because you may not, you know, if, if I have been there for four years and I've been running the supply chain, there's, it takes a, a big person to not have an ego uh, to say, well, you know, I don't want a boss. I don't want someone to come in and, and you know, tell me what to do. Uh, look at, I was able to get us from zero to a hundred million on my own. Um, but so I, I think it just talks about the culture and uh, the maturity of, of people who are there. Cause you know, not only bringing in people who have that experience, but then the right type of cultural fit. And and the one thing I noticed too is they didn't hire everybody all at once. Uh, they they hired their kind of uh, executive team over the period of it seemed about twelve months. And and so that was probably about as fast as you could go, uh, so that you could integrate people um, and you're not changing too much at, at one time. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean. I still think the story is just insane. I mean, even if like just the growth of, of K18 is incredible and to see how their team came together is also amazing. I mean, making those hires, you know, I, I think too is a huge undertaking. I mean, to to juggle, you know, culture fit, experience and strategies is, is a key undertaking. But I think let's let's understand, I mean, they created in such a short amount of time, hundreds of millions of dollars of investor value so quickly. And so I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around how this husband and wife, you know, just are complete rock stars and grew this business to 200 plus million in revenue in such a short amount of time. I mean, if they're, if they were on our podcast on e-commerce on tap, and if we asked them that, they'd probably say, look, you know, Nathan and, and Aaron, we've been in this business for 20 years, right? Though K18 was in market for three years or so before it was acquired, we've been in this business for a lot longer and we've been researching hair for, for many years before that. And so, you know, I think every overnight success story has a lot of history. 
and this one definitely does. But I mean, it seems like Suveen, the husband, didn't necessarily have like direct experience in hair care before you know, co-founding K18. I mean, he was a tech guy, as, as you mentioned. And so for him to kind of dive in and take a scientific approach to this is really remarkable. And I think it kind of stems from his obsessive curiosity that, you know, we've kind of uncovered. So I, I guess let's put, I'm curious, and put yourself in the position of Suveen, right? What does that obsessive curiosity mean? I mean, how do you go about learning as much as you can about hair? You know, his wife has Aqueous that she's running successfully. You know, he's probably wondering maybe what the root cause is. But I'm just curious, like, if you were to put yourself in Suveen's position, you know, leading up to researching and becoming kind of obsessive with hair, what, what does that look like? I think it's a lot of reading. I think it's something where, you know, I, I don't know if he started out saying, you know, let's start a business. Let's, let's start a revolutionary hair care business. I think he was just naturally curious and wanted to pick at things. And so maybe it started with researching what's on Wikipedia, right? Or researching what medical journals he could get his hands on. Maybe it evolved into talking to other scientists or other companies and just understanding, hey, you know, uh, XYZ company just launched this other thing. Does it actually work or is it just marketing fluff? And so I think that anytime you commit yourself to any idea and you just kind of have this obsession, you are, you're going to get better, right? You, you're, you know, he's probably one of the top five folks in the world uh, from a commercial perspective who just understands the science of hair. Um, and so I, I think that it's, it's you know, developing that passion and, you know, just giving way to it. Yeah, I agree. And I think too, like they did really hit a strong chord when it came to marketing. I mean, that's one kind of angle we haven't necessarily touched on at K18 yet and something that we should, we should cover, but what, I mean, they had that hashtag that went extremely viral on TikTok, the hashtag K18 hair flip. Can you walk us through what that actually was? I mean, they, they really were taking a, a, a scientific, but also data-driven approach. And I think data really stems from their, their marketing angle, right? In terms of, you know, creating this, this own viral hashtag and their own sound. Walk us through what, what marketing K18 actually looks like as well. Yeah, so I remember they launched in 2020, and uh, you know there were three things that happened in 2020. There was COVID, there was Tiger King, and there was TikTok, right? And so TikTok was exploding at that point, and so they decided that even though they were selling in salons, they wanted to have a D2C relationship with their with their end users, and so they came up with this hashtag K18 hair flip. And uh, when I checked a couple weeks ago, there were like 20 billion views, 20 billion with a B. Uh, views on TikTok of the hashtag K18 hair flip. And so basically what it was is uh, you would have, you know, users that would say, hey, here's my hair before I use K18. And then here's what it looks like afterward. And uh, it, you can see a noticeable difference. It looks healthier. It looks shinier. It just looks better. And so you see people doing this over and over and over again. And it creates this very, uh, very viral feedback loop where people want to try it. And then, of course, you get some good spoofs, some comedy stuff that comes out of it, uh, like any good viral trend. Um, but they really, you know, looked at this and said, all right, we're going to sell in, in salons. We're not going to go D2C necessarily. Uh, we don't really want to give all our money to Facebook. Let's try uh, TikTok. Um, but they recognized that before TikTok had ads or TikTok shop or anything like that, that they needed to build the audience. And so they did something that was um, very easily repeatable. Um, it didn't require them to create the content and to pass something around. It was really something where uh, they created the framework, they created a custom sound so it could all be linked together, and they let rank and file consumers just just try it. And so it was this great testimonial engine that kept working over and over again. Yeah, I mean, twenty billion views on any platform, you know, even if it's TikTok, is just insane. That's that's crazy to fathom. I mean, twenty billion views is I think really what created a trend around K18 and what got people excited about their product. I mean, whoever on the marketing team led that, hats off to them because that is such an incredible strategy and I think really drove a lot of their just incredible growth. And I think too, like we mentioned that they sought out the right feedback in terms of, you know, when they were developing the product, they were building relationships with some of the best stylists in the world. But, you know, I think 
there also was that kind of before and after effect, if you will, of someone's hair. I mean, from the videos that I saw on, on TikTok, you know, at least the ones that the brand, you know, K18 has just posted, a lot of them, like, you can actually kind of see the K18 effect, if you will, um, which whenever you have a product like that, where you can see like a before and after, it definitely draws attention. And so I think that's part of the strategy that worked in terms of marketing their product is they really leaned into that kind of before and after angle here. For sure, for sure. And I think uh, another really interesting piece is they went after the right type of testimonials. And so it's it's one thing if, uh, you know, Susan from Omaha loves it. Um, but if Susan from Omaha is actually, you know, a, a big influencer in the salon world, then that testimonial, that recommendation means a lot more. It's, it's kind of a celebrity endorsement uh, in that space. And so by focusing on their salon first strategy, they were able to get the most influential colorists who were working on A-list celebrity hair uh, to, to start to, to use this. And so uh, there were a lot of A-list celebrities like Haley Bieber, Selena Gomez, Rihanna, that, you know, loved it and kind of talked about it. And in some of my research, there were also several other celebrities that had endorsements with other hair care products that quietly were using K18 uh, because of how well it worked. And so they had a, they just built this great following, but it was the right following. It wasn't, you know, it, it's one of those things where I think you told me this at one point where, you know, you could have a thousand followers, but if they're the wrong thousand followers, it doesn't matter. Right. And so it's one of those things where it's like having just a few people who uh, really are the movers and shakers in your particular sphere. That's what really matters versus uh, just raw numbers. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's all about who sees, who listens, who interacts, not necessarily the, the sheer number. It's all about, you know, the actual who behind those numbers. That's for sure. I, I, as we wrap up here at e-commerce on tap, I mean, one kind of key question that I'm always curious is to take the lens of the acquirer and in this case it's unilever i'm curious you know what do you think unilever liked about this acquisition you know what channels did they see to expand what, what do you think that looks like when they come to the table and they say hey you know we want to buy k18 what what does that look like from their perspective yeah so i go back to my framework for how to prepare for an acquisition and in my experience you need three things to have to work you need to, one, be a profitable business, which they, they checked, way to go. Uh, you need to have some sort of level up capability, uh, whether it is a marketing channel, whether it is a distribution relationship, assets that you own. In this particular case, uh, it, was, it was patents. And the third part is it needs to be, needs to be an easy win. Uh, so something where Unilever can look at this and say, hey, if we paid a billion dollars for this thing now, how do we get this brand itself to generate a billion dollars in revenue in the next two or three years? And so with, uh, with K18, I think that there was a lot that, that they could have liked. So I'll just, you know, they're profitable. I don't need to say more about that. But really digging into their, their plus one capabilities. So they, they had a very deep inroads with the professional stylist network. Uh, so they were pro first, which meant that uh, for the longest time, you could only get it through professional hairstylists. You could only get it in salon. Uh, they had that deep network. Um, and so like that cult following was was really something that was there. What's most interesting was the patents around the hair repair. Uh, because not only does, does Unilever acquire a business that can continue to grow in and of itself, but they now have the ability to take this K18 peptide and put it into Tresemme, Nexus, uh, you know, Dove, Suave, like anything they wanted to do, they could do that in all of their other hair care products which means that they're fundamentally have the opportunity to be much better than anything else in the market. And so that, that is something that probably in itself was worth uh, several hundred million dollars uh, that was, was there. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a really unique angle. I mean, I think you know, Unilever has such a distribution powerhouse that they can get this product in so many more places than any independent brand could. So I think that's number one. And what I've seen with other brands that Unilever has acquired is they really focus on expanding distribution and expanding that brand's reach. So I think that's a key element. And I think, like you said, you know, the patented formula that K18 has stood out and really resonated with a lot of stylists and, and females and even males that care about their hair. So I think that that is a huge step. 
Um, and, I, and I think too, like they are probably going to continue to expand their SKUs, right? I mean, Unilever has such a uh, strong scientific based team when it comes to, you know, product expansion that I'm sure they're going to continue to expand their SKUs. Um, but it is remarkable to think about K18 really only had like six SKUs to get to that <laughs> point of 200 million in revenue, which is just insane to think about. I mean, that's incredible, especially from a supply chain perspective to not have to deal with hundreds of SKUs and only have like about six key ones. That is amazing. Um, and so I think, you know, now with the Unilever, they're definitely going to be expanding SKUs. And I mean, look, it's a super strong margin category, right? I mean, even if you think, okay, K18, they're paying more for their, you know, patented formula at the end of the day, you know, any kind of liquid or shampoo or gel or supplement has an extremely high margin profile in general compared to other categories so i think that was super attractive too in terms of like okay you know this is a category that we know we can win in because the margins are high and unilever already does so much in this category more so i think on kind of the you know mid to lower end but this now is kind of like their premium brand that they're probably gonna you know really put a lot of power and, and energy behind yeah, Unilever is interesting because they have uh, their Unilever Prestige Group. And so it, it's um, companies like Dermalogica, Murad, uh, that they've acquired and, and are kind of keeping a little bit separate that are this, this premium piece. And so uh, this probably slides in under there um, for that piece. But, you know, I think the other thing that's very interesting that we can learn from K18 are about the things that they didn't do. And so, you know, they didn't raise a whole lot of money. As you mentioned, they only raised $25 million. They could have probably raised four or five times that, um, but they they basically raised what they needed probably to fund inventory and some expansion. Uh, but they allowed themselves to be acquired for only uh, you know I'm, I'm saying about a billion, but who knows how close it was. Um, had they raised two hundred million million dollars, the exit multiple must have been much higher in order for those investors to make their money back. And so they were they were disciplined there. And then the other thing that was interesting is while they opted to be in salons and expand internationally, uh, they didn't really expand into retail, um, really beyond Sephora. And so, you know, one of the things I think is interesting for an acquirer like Unilever, Unilever to look at this is they have such strong relationships with Target and Walmart and other mass distributors that that's probably something in the back of their mind, like, hey, we could probably do something in this space uh, to to really grow this. And, you know, there may not be that many Walmart shoppers that want to spend 70 bucks on a uh, uh, hair treatment, um, but there's that number is also not zero, and so there's that's another way that they can kind of look at that math uh, to make a, make a billion dollars justified. I agree. What one note that we didn't touch on is fulfillment. Where did they fulfill their product from? How did they get their packaging? Let's let's touch on that briefly. Yeah, so their supply chain is uh, is U.S. based, um, so that's where they're filling and distributing from for the most part. Um, but it does look like they are sourcing some packaging from China. They're using similar manufacturers uh, in the packaging space that they use for Oculus, uh, as well as Manscaped. Um, Manscaped isn't theirs, but just looking at another big brand that's using those. Um, and from what I can tell, it looks like they probably have a 3PL in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, I kind of want to be that packaging supplier that's servicing all these uh D2C brands like Manscaped and K18 and, and a few others. That that would be a pretty fun business, I think, to, to deal with that packaging. But it is incredible just to think about, you know, the sheer scale and size that K18 got to in such a short period of time. I mean, this story, I think, is one of the coolest, but also like underreported stories. I mean, in the kind of Twitter D2C sphere that I hang out in or you know, the e-commerce sphere and events that I go to. I mean, not too many people are talking about K18. And I think, honestly, it stems from the demographic, right? I mean, most DDC founders on Twitter or at different events that I go to are are males, are, are, are men, you know, right? And so we aren't really the target demographic in general for K18. And so I think it's kind of interesting how, you know, we hear of the acquisition and we're so blown away by it. But, you know, usually when it comes to like a bigger acquisition, I have, you know, a friend of a friend that knows the founder has some like inside, you know, unique detail. But with K18, I asked my network and like people had heard of the acquisition just because it was just, you know, huge and an incredible story. But they didn't really have any like, oh, I, I know Suveen or I, you know, know this about K18. Like, 
no one really knew that much when I was, you know, doing research for this episode, besides what was written about them online. And, you know, what we heard on, on other podcasts about K-18. Yeah, I think they got to be so big so quickly. And uh, it's funny, most of the the CEOs that I work with are female, and they didn't know about it either. So I think it was um, not necessarily a gender thing, but probably more of a demographic thing. Because um, again, I, I think these are these are founders that have been around for a while, um, and so maybe they're just not hanging out at the the conferences that you and I go to. But <clears throat> yeah, it's it's a remarkable one, and I think it's a lesson that um, that a lot of us can learn from when it comes to just engineering the outcome that you want. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, they definitely went for it and uh, utilized you know their their network and previous experience, right? I think a lot of times. As operators, we kind of want to explore what we don't know, but really we should actually be leaning more into what we do know, right? You know, if you're running uh, your fulfillment for your brand or running your overseas supply chain or whatever it may be, you know, you should actually probably lean in deeper and become more of an expert in that rather than going away and, 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 and doing something else. And I think in, you know, this case with K18, they really leaned into this industry because they had that existing network and they had, you know, experience with a product that, you know, benefited hair. And then they said, Hey, why don't we actually, you know, work on a product that benefits the source of what we care about, which is our hair. So I think my takeaway from, from this story is really lean into it, to what you have experienced with and what you know, because you're going to have even greater outcomes by doing that. Yeah, that, that definitely resonates with me. One of the things that I usually tell the founders or CEOs that I work with is, you know, if you're picking a product category and then you're committed to this, you should be top five in the world or your goal should be top five in the world as far as what goes into that and how they work. And so it's one of those things where I think that uh, kind of doubling down and making sure that whether it is contact lenses, dog food or other things that you're, you're really, you know, being the best at it. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Well, that was an incredible overview of K18, and there we have it on e-commerce on tap. Aaron, is there anything else you want to add as we conclude this episode? Uh, look, we're we're doing our best here to kind of see what we can gather from public information. If if we got anything wrong, or you know, there's another company wants to take a look at, let us know. Um, but I, I think that uh, this is a great masterclass, and, uh, and and I've learned a ton from from looking at K18. Awesome. There we have it. I agree. I mean, Aaron and I and uh, our team do a lot of research on these companies before we record. We, you know, strive to get everything right, but we don't always. And, you know, some people have more information on these brands than we do. So if you have an interesting take on K18, you know, shoot us a note um, at Sourceify or at ISBA, you know, find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'd love to hear your comments. And thank you again for tuning in to this episode of E-Commerce on Tap, brought to you by Source Fine Isba. Please like, subscribe, comment. It goes a long way. And we'll see you next time.